We pray that you would illuminate our hearts tonight, that you would guide us in the study of this portion of Scripture this fall. For we seek to learn what you have spoken of to us and about our situation in the universe, about our situation and our relationship to you. And we know that truth and truth alone can come from the Word. We ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. I want to introduce the series um, somewhat as I did last year, uh, just to refresh our minds and pull things together. And for those who might be new, that you'll um, be kind of oriented to our approach in these classes. Um, this series that we're teaching is not a classical Bible study. Uh, it's not a substitute for exegetical, verse-by-verse analysis of the text. Uh, it is not a topical approach either, uh, nor is it uh, an evangelistic, apologetic approach. What it is is an attempt to mix all three of those approaches together in one package. Um, what we're trying to do is create uh, a tripartite approach where we deal with the events of Scripture as real historical events that can be defended, can be discussed, that are out there not as a subjective religious experience. For example, we talk about the Exodus, we talk about creation, we talk about the fall, we talk about the fall of the Jewish kingdom in 586. These are all historic events. They all happened. And the Christian faith, unlike other faiths, is dependent upon the validity of these historical events. You can't separate Christianity from history. If you do, you wind up with a subjective, convoluted, messy uh, psychology, really, of religion. Christianity depends on the absolute and total validity of the historical events of Scripture. So, because that is so, that immediately involves anyone who is a Christian, at least in the 20th century, or who's been a Christian from 19, the 19th century on, uh, in a massive problem. Because on every front, the Scripture is being opposed. The entire worldview of our time is oriented basically against the Scripture. The Scripture is nothing more than a sweet religious story to the world at large. And we live in that kind of a culture. And we have to learn how to handle ourselves in that culture. And we have to learn about the techniques that are being applied against us, the hidden agendas that are being applied by the world system. The Bible says the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it means what it says. These are three hostile enemies of our faith. And we're, we're quite naive and quite foolish if we don't think they're very real and they're impressing upon us all the time. So, this series is, is going to deal with these three things. The Bible as real history. We're going to deal with these events as revealing God and His message to man. So, we're going to deal with His words and His interpretation of those events. And we're going to deal with the apologetic approach, meaning we're giving reasons uh, for our faith because we believe faith is true. It's not just what I feel. This Christian gospel is not an opinion. It is truth. 
It's not my opinion versus your opinion or your opinion versus somebody else's opinion. We're not talking opinion. We're talking truth. And that's a very difficult question in our own time because we deal with a very, very subjective culture, particularly in America right now, very subjective culture, uh, very much into mystical things, uh, uh, a tremendous destruction of language and meaning. And that's the, that's the environment in which we live, and we're trying to preach a gospel of truth in the middle of all that mess. And we wonder why we have an impotent faith at times. So that's the, the design of the series. Now, uh, again, I want to start by taking you to some of the passages of Scripture. Uh, let's go to Acts, uh, because we just want to see what one of the early Christian sermons looked like. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. What we're going to do for just a few minutes is survey the preachers of the Christian faith, the early preachers, and how they, they, they preached into the world and preached to those around them. In Acts 7, we have the story of the first martyr recorded uh, in church history, Stephen. And the sermon in Acts 7 was given to a very unfriendly audience, to say the least. So what we want to do, no big analysis here tonight. We're, this tonight is just kind of an introduction. Uh, we'll have some notes to hand out next week. And as we did last year in the fall and the spring, we hand out uh, some loose-leaf notes. We try to put three holes in them. and You can get a binder somewhere, a loose-leaf binder, and just use that binder for the notes. Uh, then you, at the end, you'll have probably close to 100 pages of notes. Um, and we'll use those. Those are kind of like uh, lecture notes. But they'll give you uh, an outline of where we're going. And I'll go through the introduction to that so we can get used to that um, tonight. But in Acts 7... If you look at how Stephen deals with the situation, remember in verse 1, Stephen faces uh, a total assault. He's, he's having to give an answer for his faith before a hostile group of the council. That You see the last verse of chapter 6. And the council stands there, and here Stephen is all by himself, called to give an account, just like we're called to give account. Now, notice how Stephen gives an account. This man is a deacon. He's not a professional theologian. He's not a man who's got a PhD in philosophy. He's a Jew who knows well why he is a Christian. So he gives an answer. And he starts in verse 2. Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said, and he quotes Genesis, and then he goes on, he departs from the land of the Chaldeans and so on. He gave him no inheritance in it. And in verse 5 at the end, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession, a quote from Genesis. In verse 6, God spoke to this effect, his offspring of the aliens in a foreign land, da 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 is a quote from Genesis. Verse 7 is a quote from Genesis. Verse 8 gives the story from Genesis. Verse 9 speaks further of the last part of the book of Genesis. It's a recital of one historical act after another. Now, why do you suppose here a man is giving a defense of his faith 
And what he's saying is, it's not what I, Stephen, believe in my heart. That, that's true, yes, but that's not enough to say that. What he's saying is that this is the way history is going. I am talking about the Lord God of history, and therefore the Lord God of every fact, and the Lord God of every event of history, and that history has a purpose and a meaning, and you people know a lot about it. And he uses as his authority, you notice, he uses as his authority the text, the Old Testament text. A very detailed analogy, you go down verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, just skim, let your eye just skim that text. And you see one fact after another fact after another fact after another fact out of the Old Testament text. In verse 18, he begins to move on to the next book in the Bible. And there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Now we're into Exodus. And then he goes on and talks about the Pharaoh's daughter. And then in verse 27 and 28, that prelude to the Exodus. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me. And he's citing the turmoil, the political turmoil among the Jewish community while he lived in Egypt when Moses wanted them to leave. And he quotes from Exodus. Uh, he goes on and goes through the whole Exodus thing. And then he gets into the later on in the Old Testament. He, verse 40, verse 41... Verse 42, uh, verse 43, he, he cites uh, passages there from the prophets, and so forth and so on. In verse 49, he quotes, and there he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. And he goes through until finally in verse 51, he gives his, uh, his counterattack to the people who questioned his faith. You men who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and hard in ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And so he appeals to the continuity of God's Word in a hostile and unfriendly world. The point is that Stephen's faith is historically centered. And he is in command of history. All right, let's turn. That's, that's how the Christians defended themselves to a Jewish hostile audience. Now let's turn to Acts 17. We started there last time, last fall, but we want to go back there, just a reminder. And Acts 17 is the early Christians now defending themselves against the hostile Gentile world. So in Acts 7, we've got a speech delivered to the Jews. In Acts 17, a speech delivered to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. This is Paul, and the connection between Paul and Stephen is interesting because Stephen was a Jew who was a Hellenistic Jew, one who traveled in the eastern end of the Mediterranean at least, uh, very much more metropolitan in his viewpoint than, say, some of the more provincial Palestinian Jews. And now here Paul is, and Paul was standing there, and he heard that first speech in Acts 7. Now in Acts 17, Paul has gone out from Palestine into the world and he encounters the philosophers at Athens. Now, this is a classic speech. And in verse 22, he begins. And I want you to notice how he begins. Remember, he's talking to a different audience than Stephen. Stephen talked to an audience that already knew the Bible. Paul teaches here to an audience that does not know the Bible. But still, Paul follows Stephen in his method. 
Because in Acts 17.22, he said, Men of Athens, I observe you're very religious in all respects. While I was passing through, so there he's connecting with a situation that was going on in Athens. Now look what happens. In verse 24, what does Paul do? What does the text report that that man is doing? Right at the front end. Right at the front end. There's no reasoning approach. He's not going back to first principles. He's simply citing the creation. God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands and so forth and so on. It's a statement of the events of Genesis. Creation. Then he goes on in verse 26 and he's stating a fact from the, talking about the dispersion of man after the Genesis flood. He's made from one, every nation of men, to live on all the face of the earth and so forth. And he cites the Psalms and he gets into Old Testament theology there. But it's a presentation of the truths of this sacred history. And then he goes on to attack. In verse 31, he says, this same God who created, who supervised, superintended this history, the history now, by the way, we might note in verse 26 and 27 that instead of talking about Jewish history, there he's talking about the justification for the existence of the Greeks. He's tracing them as a subset of all Gentiles who are a subset of the total human race. And so there he weds the entire view into the framework of Scripture. Now, if I can draw a little diagram here of the strategy that's being used. The best way of describing this is a, is a, is a picture or, or a phraseology of strategic envelopment. In other words... Um, in battle, in, in doctrine of war and engagement and strategies and so forth, if you have an army, uh, the classic set-piece battle out of the Middle Ages or something, or the Brits, British and the French and so on, and um, th they used to make their battle lines like, like this, face on. And we call this the direct approach. And it was pretty... Um, bloody and messy and usually when wars are fought with direct strategies the casualties are very very high but most wars aren't won by direct confrontation most wars are won by indirect approaches and the idea obviously is to outflank to try some flanking maneuver um, and see where that gets you uh, or it might be a, a raid back here on the logistics that is supporting that army and blowing away the chain of logistics and therefore you cut off the, the army that way. So there's lots of ways of doing it. But the whole idea is to envelop your enemy either in power, in terrain, or some way. So we call that, we, we say that's envelopment rather than just trying to go in and blow him away directly. What we're doing is enveloping him in our organization. We're making him march to our tomb. We're not picking his tomb. So if he has to have supplies come to his army, he comes through routes that we control. If he needs to move, he does so in such a way that we watch him all times. 
So the, the idea of a strategic envelopment lies at the heart of Christian apologetics. Think of what Stephen has done and what Paul is doing here. Let's look carefully again at Acts 17. In Acts 17, verse 23, he is not arguing in a philosophic sense, an Aristotelian sense, from, to, to God's existence. He, in verse 23, instead has analyzed the Athenian mind, has interpreted the Athenian mind in the light of Scripture. So, in place of an army here, we'll draw it in another color, in the place of an army, we have the Athenian. And what Paul is saying, I come to you and I interpret how you think, how you're reacting in my framework. So he says in verse 23, there's a total analysis. Verse 23 is an analysis of the Athenian mind in a biblical frame of reference. He says, you people, you worship in ignorance. Now that's a, a you know, it's a, a judgmental statement. You're worshiping, I can, I can see that, and I know you're worshiping. I go around here and I do my little analysis. I look at it from a biblical point of view, this idol here, this idol there. So I, can, I know that you're religious. And he says that you're doing it in ignorance, which means there's a standard he's using to measure ignorant, smarter, smarter truth. So he's got a standard that he's already imposed. He hasn't argued for it. He's imposed it. He says, this I proclaim to you. Then he goes on and makes a statement in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. Now, if there was anything that the Stoics, the Epicureans, Plato and Aristotle did not believe in, it was an ex nihilo creator. So, Paul, in saying that, using the same word he used, G-O-D, up in verse 23, he is now proclaiming that the God that they're ignorantly worshipping is the God known in Judaism as the ex nihilo creator of all things. So now in verse 23, he's enveloped the Athenian in a biblical analysis of the way he thinks. In verse 24, he's basically enveloped the entire universe. Because obviously, if this God he's talking about has made all things, then everything inside history is under the control of that God. So he's enveloped in, in two verses here. He's done a total strategic envelopment of his audience. Then he has made for one, verse 23, 26, is an analysis of the rise of races and cultures and languages in history, which we're going to study this fall. And here you have a complete biblical philosophy of history and the rise of civilization. And we could go on and on. Then he starts doing, in verse 28... He indicates that I've read your poets. And he cites specific passages from the own writings and interprets the writings of the Greeks in a biblical frame of reference. Everywhere Paul touches on a fact, he is incorporating that fact into a biblical frame of reference. So again, I say that what we're observing here is a method of envelopment. What practically does that mean? It has, it's a powerful way of thinking as a biblical creationist, fundamentalist, loyalist to the infallibility of Scripture. What, what this is, is a way of looking at all of life, not just the religious part of life. What we tend to do in our religious circles is we sector out life 
and we have sort of a pie chart and we say we have this part of our life and that part of our life and over here we have the religious part. And it, we visualize it as a sector. And the Bible talks about that little sector. But the Bible doesn't have anything to say, of course, it's a mathematical equation. The Bible has nothing to say about history. The Bible has nothing to say about philosophy. But it sure does say something about this little religious sector. The problem with thinking that way is that your faith is no bigger than the sector. And finally what happens is that if you operate and, and sing the world's tune over in all these other sectors, they overwhelm this one. You can never break out because you've been strategically enveloped by the world. So the counter move in this game, the counter move is to learn to think in terms of a biblically strategic envelopment of every area of life. And that's what we're talking about. So having said that, let me review just a little bit from last time and then we'll go forward and look at what we're going to look at now. In fact, before we review what we did last time, let me just uh, give you a, a peek at how we're going to move this fall. Last year, we spent in the, in the fall discussing two great events, the creation and the fall. We dealt with Genesis 1 and 2. We dealt with Genesis 3. And we went through the text. Presume we all read the text and then we discussed it. And we said, those are the two very, very crucial events. Those events color everything else in the Bible. Screw up over there and the whole house of cards falls down. How do we also know that from church history? Think about it. What's the, one of the most famous creeds of historic Christianity? The Apostles' Creed. How does the Apostles' Creed begin? I believe in God the Father Almighty. What? Maker of heaven and earth. Now, is it an accident that the writers of the early creeds began with these events? It was the creation that defines the nature of God. So that's why those creeds are designed that way. This is why the Bible starts there. So we follow that same sequence. These are two critical events that we have to be thought through. Then we said we went on and discussed the flood and the Noahic covenant. And we'll talk about the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Noahic covenant just by way of review tonight and a little bit next time. Then what we're going to do this year is we're going to go into this event, the call of Abraham, because it's the call of Abraham that begins a separation process in history. The call of Abraham at one, on one side is a positive affirmation of progress in the plan of God. But there's a negative to the call of Abraham. If God calls Abraham and says, through you, I will do this, 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 and this, and I will bless the world, then the corollary is he's rejected everybody else. So the call of Abraham is a plus, but it also has a minus. It has a downside. And it's an indictment of the world system. The fact that God has to call Abraham means that something out there, as we will see, is wrong, structurally wrong with civilization. And the rise of this creates the problem that we still live as Christians in our society when we walk around and say, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but me. Oh, that's bigotry to think that you have the truth and only you have it. Why, why, you're a religious bigot. The idea then of a missionary approach 
the conflict of a missionary claim that this is the truth and this isn't begins right here with the call of Abraham. It doesn't start with the gospel of Jesus. It starts with the call of Abraham. Because at that point, you have a separation. Well, then we're going to go on to another event which is one of the most climactic events of all the Old Testament. The Exodus is to the Jews what the crucifixion is to Christians. It's a tremendous event, a very powerful event, and the political ideas and insights it gives into history are amazing. So we want to look at the Exodus. Then after the Exodus, we're going to look at the giving of the law. The fact is that the kingdom of God is controlled by God's will. And God states his will, and he states his will for every sector of society, the Mosaic law. It doesn't just talk about religious things. It talks about loaning money. It talks about the sentence for thievery. It talks about marriage and divorce. It talks about property rights. It talks about juvenile delinquency. It talks about saving an inheritance for a family unit. It talks about a lot of things. Why? Because the kingdom of God is a total thing over every area of life. Again, strategic envelopment. It's not just talking about praying, important as that is. It's talking about every area. Then we're going to talk about a very controversial thing in the scriptures. What about the doctrine of holy war? The idea, and you will see this, of course, now with what's going on in the, far, in the Middle East this week, uh, inevitably you'll hear this issue of the conflict going on. This is not to justify one side or the other. It's just simply to say that in the Old Testament there is a clear mandated conquest and there are certain ethics that accompany this conquest. It's a bloody, messy conflict. This is holy war. And we have to look at that because there, if we believe in the New Testament that all things are written today for our admonition out of the Old Testament, what is the contribution of this bloody, ruthless conquest? What is that all about? And that's the one, if you've been in a discussion about Christianity, somebody will trot that one out on you. It's a hot potato. Better learn how to handle that one. Oh, you're a Christian. You believe in all that. Well... We have to think about why that's there. can't deny it's there. The text is there. What we have to do is deal with that text. Then we're going to conclude uh, this year with the reign of King David because he represents the leadership, the primary leadership of the kingdom of God. David, of course, becomes a messianic type of Jesus Christ who will lead the kingdom of God. So that is it's a tremendous section of Old Testament theology and from Abraham to David is the seminal part of the Old Testament after you get through the creation, Noah, and all the rest of it. So that's what we're going to deal with. Okay, let's come back and review two of these events tonight, and then we're going to review two others next week. This is old hat, perhaps, for some of you who were here last year, but that's okay. I've always benefited from review, and I'm sure you can too. The creation. Let's go back to Genesis 1. And by the way, to prepare this year, as you can obviously see, last year is pretty easy to read because we only covered nine chapters of the Bible. 
plus the New Testament commentary on those nine chapters. This year, we're going to approach it a lot faster because we've got a lot more Scripture to handle. So the reading, for your own kind of pacing, what I recommend you do is don't get bogged down in details. The easiest way, I think, to approach this is if you have an, pick out whatever translation is easy for you. Now, if some of you like King James, fine. If you like the New A and the ASV, fine. But get something you're comfortable with. Then start reading, because at least for the next month or two, we want to finish Genesis. Now, the way to read Genesis, from, from Genesis 12 on to the end, here's some, some tips on how to read that. So you can read it fast, and you can get the drift of what's going on. Keep in mind that that part of the Bible is dealing with one family. Everything else is surrounding that one family. All the stories of the kings, the stories of the wars, and this and that and all the rest is still talking about basically one family. So if you read from Genesis 12 to Genesis, at the, to the, all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, uh, you take a little notes, rough paper, and the way I would outline it, um, you can pick whatever outline you want, but an easy one to follow is just write Abraham. And then as you read your chapters, find out how many chapters basically deal with Abraham. Then go to Isaac. Find out how many chapters deal with Isaac. And then go to Jacob. Find out how many chapters deal with Jacob. Then you come to the last part of the book of Genesis and you, all of a sudden Joseph becomes a key point. But if you look at the text carefully, you have to ask yourself, is this story really about Joseph? Or is it still about Jacob? Because... Jesus in the New Testament doesn't speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac. When Jesus refers to God, he says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He quotes only three of the four. Now, why is that? That's something we want to talk about as we come into this narrative of this, this family, this first Jewish family on earth. So, outlining, watch for the chapters in each one of these things. Okay? So if you make, a, make yourself a little check sheet, I'd say you could organize it this way. And you could just do this on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper and just keep taking notes on it. It's going to look like a sloppy mess when you're done, but that's okay. You can always organize it later. But if you think in terms of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and observe themes in the text... So, let's trace some themes. And you can just write little comments, little observations. Because what we are after right now isn't the details. What we want to get is the big picture of what's going on here. One of the themes that you want to look upon is the theme of what's going on in the Gentiles around them. Those stories keep reporting an event here, an event here, an event here. Why? Of the hundreds of events the Holy Spirit could have captured in the text. Why did he capture these events? What story is God trying to tell us by picking this event, this event, and that event, and then tying them like beads on a necklace together in the narrative of Genesis? There's a theme here, and it will emerge as we go on. So, one of your observations should be, what is going on in the Gentile world around at the time this, thing, this family is growing? 
Look upon the, uh, the interaction of the Gentiles. In other words, what is the effect the Gentiles are having on this Jewish family? And what effect is the Jewish family having on the Gentiles? In other words, the feedback going on between these two. Just watch that. These, these will be little observations. You'll read a story and maybe we'll come back to it a week or two later and you'll say, oh, gee, I didn't see that. That's right, there's something else in here. And just endlessly goes on. But it's a discovery process. Then ask yourself, what about the promises to Abraham? There's going to be three major areas of promise. Look and see how land plays a role in the stories. Because God said, I will give unto you this land. So you want to watch that. That theme of the land. Are we in it? Are we out of it? Who's occupying the land now? Where's the boundaries of the land? So, in the back of your head, as you read the text, start thinking how you'd fill in the matrix here on the land. What role does each generation of that family have to do with that land? Then, another one is the seed. The promise of the children, the, the messianic line it become, emerges as a great theme here. Ask yourself, for example, when Isaac and Ishmael collide, what is that saying about the children? What, what, and when you get to Jacob and Esau, you've got the same problem. There's a fight among children in these families. Children are out of control by the third generation. It's a, it's a mess. This first family is a mess by the third generation. Only took them three generations to fall apart. Land, seed, you think, you know, your family's dysfunctional. Hey, look at this one. The land, the seed, and blessing, the worldwide blessing. What is this blessing? You'll see that word blessing over and over. Jacob wants the blessing. Now, this is just a suggested mode as, you, as you, we read this fall. Now, we're not going to get into David, but for our first block, we're going to finish Genesis off. And there's a lot of chapters there. And there's a lot of details. And if you're new to the Old Testament, let me encourage you. You don't have to get bogged down in the details. Get the highlights. Stephen's speech was only 40 verses long and he capsulized perfectly the theology of Genesis. And it didn't take him 8,000 verses to do it. It took him only 20 to 25. Stephen distilled it. He saw what the great themes were and this was the way he knew his God. We know God by how he acts and what he says. How do we know anybody? By our words and by our works. So we're learning about God through all this. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Okay. That's where we're going. That's a suggested way of reading. So go ahead and read uh, ahead of us as we go through this because it will mean a lot more for you if you start raising questions. If you have questions, write them down. Some of these questions will be answered as you keep on reading. But if you have, why, what do we have, what's the story of the rape of Dinah going on here in the, fourth, in the third generation of that family? What's all that about? Why do we have a war going on over that? And why did the Holy Spirit put that thing in the text of what, the story that he's unfolding here? All of it has a purpose. God is a rational mind and he thinks in a systematic way. 
And the Bible is written in a systematic way because it reflects the mind of the God who wrote the Bible. All right, we're going to go now to Gen- back to Genesis 1, and we want to review some of the highlights of our last, our last time together. You remember, we approached the Bible, as we will this time, antithetically. I had you read Genesis 1, and I put up there, and I put in the notes, this text called Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish is one of the most famous of the pagan creation stories, the pagan narratives. And one of the exercises that you would should do, particularly if you're in, a, in an academically hostile environment, um, is learn to read the Bible against its contemporary literature. Now, this story was circulated all over Mesopotamia at the time the Old Testament was being written. This was the pop version of creation. And we said last time there are things to observe in that text. And from that, we made some some judgments about paganism in general. And by the way, we use the word pagan as a label. Not necess- it's not necessarily that everybody's a pagan who's, you know, they're immoral or they're doing this or that. That's not what the word pagan means. The word pagan, if you look in a dictionary, means anybody who doesn't worship the God of the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims, the God of the Bible. So, pagan is, is just a polytheist person basically worshiping the creation. So, in this, it starts out, when above the heavens had not been named, below the earth had not been called by a name, when Apsu and Tiamat, uh, these gods apparently mingle their waters together. So the idea is a watery chaos. You look in your Genesis text and what do you see in verse 2? You see the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Watery chaos. So, but the pagan, notice this, and this is the difference. This is the difference. In Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, if you read the text carefully, you see that God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void as a watery mess. What do you read here? It says, Apsu and Mumu and Tiamat, she who gave birth to them all, still mingle their waters together. And we, we showed various other parts of the text where... The universe comes out of the anatomy of the gods. So the difference between the god and the universe is smeared. The universe is an appendage of God. It comes out of the body of God. And you'll also note that the motif of generation in this pagan text, the motif that generates things, is the motif of procreation. The gods are procreating things into existence. Now, if you read the Bible, in contrast, how in all the verbs that you read in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, what verb predominates in the text? What's the action verb? The action that God takes initially. Is it an action of procreation? Or what? It says, God said in verse 3, Then he saw the light was good, he called the light day. Verse 6, God said, God said, God spoke, God said. Hold the place and turn to John 1. 
Here is an apostolic interpretation of Genesis. John meditated, obviously, on the text of Genesis, and he expands upon it in verse 1 and 2. This is a stunning thing. We can't emphasize this enough, particularly in our own generation, with what is happening in all kinds of areas with language. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things. John is so adamant that when you read the Genesis text and God created by saying, God created by speaking, God created with His mouth, as it were, by saying something and suddenly it was there, that He expands that to make language a person who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an expansion of God with a Trinity understanding. But what you want to notice is is that above all is language. God speaks. On the way back to Genesis, stop halfway through the Old Testament at Psalms and turn to Psalm 33. And in John, Psalm 33, which is another commentary in the book of Genesis, so we, we control our interpretation of Genesis by going to these other places in the Bible. In Psalm 33, verse 6, how is it made like that? Like a pagan procreating something into existence? How do you read? It says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And then in verse 9, an eloquent summary of the mechanics of creation. For he spoke, and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. Now, there's a stunning thing that comes out of all this. And that is that above all, in the biblical worldview, there is intelligence with a capital I, there is language, there is thought behind everything. Every event, all of the universe. That means there is no such thing as irrationality. There is no such thing as some chaos that is unthinkable. It is no such thing as ultimately something is unknowable. Not saying that man can understand it all, but God exists who does. So it is his thoughts, his ideas, and his speech, and his language that formulated everything from neutrons and protons to electromagnetic fields to all kinds of stuff in the subparticle structures to the artwork of forms in the biological realm. So that, for example, when we look upon man as created in the image of God, we're talking about the fact is that God has an idea in his head about a structure or an art form, and structure and form take on vast meaningfulness here because they come from God's thoughts. Example, let's take an animal, a sheep. If we are to believe in a pagan story, as a modern version of paganism, that it's all by chance. It has happened somehow through a chance process. The sheep just happened to look like a sheep because of the forces 
of natural selection and mutation that the form we call the form of a sheep, so if you're an artist, you draw it this way, that form is a pure chance thing. Form he sees Jesus take. And as I looked and I saw the throne of God and there was a of God on there, a lamb. The form of the sheep is not a biological accident. It's the form of that animal, that four-legged woolly animal, that form is related to the theological purpose of history. And you can go on to the form of man, the form of everything. Angels have forms. They're not its. They're not little gas clouds floating around. They have form. And the form comes because that's the way God thinks. Now, if we want to worship God, worship God, and not just be spooky and religious about it, you worship God because you see how big He is. When you look at, in, in a few weeks here, with the leaves and color, think about the colors you're looking at. One person said about 20, 30 years ago, one of Francis Schaeffer's sons used to say, you know, it's interesting, God could have made everything in grays. He could have made the fish in the depths of the ocean all monochrome, because after all, nobody can see them. And yet, man goes down in deep diving apparatuses, and he sees this fantastic beauty. Why is there such an aesthetic dimension to the universe? Because we have an aesthetic God. God likes music. He likes art. When was music first begun? It said the angels sang as the foundations of the earth were created. Music precedes civilization. Think about that. Music precedes civilization. It is not a product of civilization. It preceded civilization. Language isn't something that comes out of somebody that suddenly discovered an alphabet. Ooh! We go from pictographic writing to alphabetic writing and look what we have come up with. What does Psalm 33 say? Who was speaking before man? God was speaking. So, He is the author of language, intelligence, and thought. Why do we belabor the point? Here's why. The Christian has over the centuries insisted that God speaks through this book called the Word of God. The Christians have insisted over the centuries that we can talk to that God in prayer. That there is a communication of thought and word going on between the believer and his Lord. How do you protect that faith if you don't have this as a basis of language? You tell me. If language is just an accident, it's just a product of man. It's just a, a feature of creation. Independently of some, you know, gas cloud then there can't be... All we can do is maybe feel the sense of the infinite or something like that. It just totally renders null and void prayer, praise, knowing God's... as knowing a will that God wants me to do this and He doesn't want me to do that. I can formulate that in thought. This is only makes sense if we hold to this. If this isn't here, we're just fooling ourselves. That's why... 
Far Eastern religion gets very spooky because what they have done is take certain forms of Far Eastern religion, these two ideas, to their ultimate conclusion. And we've shown this about 108 times last year, and we'll show it again. But we want to review this, because this is basic stuff. Basic, basic stuff. Screw up here, and we're going to build a house all crooked. There are only two ideas in the world about the universe. I was standing in line at the uh, Southampton School Board meeting one year, three or four years back, and they were arguing about whether they're going to discuss creation in the classroom and this and that, and somebody got up from Aberdeen Proving Ground that I know I work with all the time. Said, well, there's 108 different ways of expressing creation, as many creation myths. If we let the Bible in, we'll have to let all 107 others in. And I turned to him, I said, no, they're not. There's only two creation stories. He looked at me like I hit him in the stomach or something. I said, no, there's only two creation stories. Don't give me this 108 stuff. There's the pagan view, and there's the biblical view. The pagan views are remarkably similar. And here's the things they share. They deny this. This is a central doctrine. Ex nihilo, meaning that God created out of nothing. He cre- that they deny this, but that's what that expression, that Latin expression, out of nothing, meaning that God didn't take some prior existing thing and remold it. He created everything with His Word. That tradition permeates ancient myths such as you just saw. This Enuma Elish one. It is brought to great finesse in the Eastern religions. Western philosophy is drifting toward that, with existentialism, particularly in the 20th century. And modern theologians are usually cabooses on a train. They always follow. You know, liberalism basically follows what the philosophers thought of 50 years ahead of them. And what does this idea promote? The continuity of being, meaning. Think of Tiamat in that story. She is water, and somehow she, out of her body, she procreates everything else. There's just a continuity of being. There's no distinction between God and that which God creates. Because the gods, little g here, are actually part of the universe. So there's not a separation ever. They're just part of the continuum. So there's this belief in this continuity of being. The ex nihilo concept of the scriptures held in ancient monotheism and we last last fall remember I quoted some some places where early tribes who have not been contaminated by by say the Christian missionary when you go into some of these tribes lo and behold they have preservations of pieces of the Genesis 1 to 9 narrative in their very tribal traditions how did that happen because they remembered that truth that was given to them through Noah, through their grandsons and so on, hadn't fallen aside. So there is an ancient monotheism. There's ancient Israel, which we're going to study in the Old Testament. There's the Bible and fundamentalism. And these basically are the only people that hold to this ex nihilo creation. Now, the, the fallout of doing this is tremendous. The creator-creature distinction or the continuity of being. Ultimately, bottom line, is this, that if we believe in the Bible with an ex nihilo creation, we have as our ultimate environment, 
Everybody wants to be an environmentalist. Okay, let's be an environmentalist. Let's talk about the ultimate environment behind the environment. What's the environment behind the environment? The ultimate environment in the Scripture is an infinite personal God. He's infinite. He's omniscient. And we went through all His attributes. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's uh, omnipotent. He's omni. He's infinite. But He's also personal. He speaks. He likes music. He likes art. But on the other side of the fence, what we wind up with eventually is this. An infinite, but now it's impersonal. It's nothing but a force field. This is why we cited the epic of our time, the great epic story of Star Wars. What was it? May the force be with you, or may it be the force. May it be with you. George Lucas knew what he was doing. He's well-read. He knew what he was doing in that movie. He's presenting paganism, the structure of thought through paganism. I'm not saying he's immoral. We're just saying he's pagan. That is a pagan principle, and it can be traced centuries and centuries backwards in time. Now, to, to say that that is so, it's not me speaking, here's what some of the historians point out. Just some quotes, so we understand the cleavage of Genesis 1-1 separates the men from the boys. Here's where we separate faith from non-faith. These are, this chain of being is a belief that can be traced for centuries in the thoughts of men. That's this continuity of being, the idea that you have the gods shade into angels that shade into men, that shade into animals, that shade into rocks. There's a continuity of being. And what's interesting is that that shows up in our modern idea of cosmic evolution. What we call evolution today is not new. It did not start with Darwin. Here's Saul Tax writing in the Darwin Centennial. Remember Darwin wrote in 1859 and here the University of Chicago put out this big book in 1960. Far Eastern philosophers thought of creation in evolutionary terms, a belief in an inherent continuity of all creation, and second, a reference to the merging of one species into another. Turn to Genesis 1, and let's reflect upon a portion of the text. Genesis chapter 1. What does it say in verse 24 and 25? Contrast what you're reading there in that text with what I just quoted up on the overhead projector. See if you can see what the big difference is. In verse 24 and 25, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, cattle after their kind, everything that creeps in the earth after its kind. What's the emphasis there? Continuity and merging of species? or a separation of species. Now, you could argue, oh, but that's just a biological truth. I mean, come on. That, you, that, that's, just, that's just, we're talking biological models, that's all. It has no application. Ah, the Bible doesn't let you say that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Here, Paul takes the very concept of the, of the separation of species to explain salvation and resurrection from the dead. See, the Bible is a unit. 
And as I said, if we screw up in the early chapters of our Bibles, we pay the price in the later chapters of our Bible because we can't any longer understand it. In 1 Corinthians 15, you notice what he says. He says, verse 37, That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, but God gives it a body as He wishes. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heaven is one, the glory of the earth is another. One glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. And there's the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. The species differentiation from creation is the forerunner of salvation. The resurrection is not the same as the natural man. There's no crossover. There's no continuity of being. Do you see what I'm saying? Is that if you allow the continuity of being to mold your thought, you're going to be salvation by works. Because you can slowly blend from unsaved to saved. And it's precisely that idea that Paul is coming to grips with in 1 Corinthians 15 by insisting that that Genesis doctrine of the separation of kinds, kind of this, a kind of that, that does not go from this to that, it goes from this to this, and this goes from this to this, and they don't mix. There's a reason for that. The purity of the categories. Category of created creature, category of saved and unsaved, and you'll see the categories in the Mosaic Law Code between the clean and the unclean, the category between the holy and the sinful, the category, all categories, category of man and woman, You'll see how that's preserved in the Bible contrary to certain people today. So, there's a continuity of this insistence in Scripture on categories because God made the categories. They're His laws. And to violate those categories is to violate the authority of God Himself who made them. Alright, so those are some of the ideas we dealt with in creation. We reviewed some of the attributes of God. You remember we listed them last time. The attribute, He is omnipresent. He is all things everywhere. He is omnipotent. He can do all things. He is immutable. He never changes. He is eternal. He is not confined to time. He is sovereign. He controls all things after His will. He is holy. He is love. And He is omniscient. He knows all things, both actual and potential. So, that's the kind of God that comes out of creation. And then we showed last time a number of slides, but um, the one that we kept going back to again and again to keep ourselves looking at creatures is the limitations of our knowledge. Whether a person is a Christian or a pagan makes no difference. They have to live in the box. Remember that diagram? We can't get enough of that. That is the limitations of knowledge in space and time. No matter who you are, no matter how long you've lived, no matter where you are, no matter what language you speak, you are left to live in the box. You have to live in, in a time period between very you know, fractions of a second and the historical period of your life, and you have to observe and experience things within a certain spatial domain. And anything out beyond that, though it may be extended by scientific instrumentation, basically is a deduction. And to go to the right, that is, to explore what happens over very, very long time intervals that you personally can't observe, is a conjecture. And we dealt with that, and we dealt with some of the dating schemes and so forth. I only point that out, that when we start reading now in Genesis chapter 10, I said Genesis 12, but actually we're going to start this year 
with gen, kind of Genesis 9 and 10 because we've got a setup for the call of Abraham. We have to remember that the world that we are seeing Abraham in is not the world we learn about in Origins of Civilization courses in school. Because the way we're taught in school is that civilization somehow got started in the Fertile Crescent and one thing led to another and so forth and we had this, this gradually change from nomadic life to the agrarian settled urban cities and so forth and so on. That is not the scriptural view of history. In scripture, what we have developed, it developed very rapidly and we'll talk about the rise of civilization next week, but for next week, if you do the following thing in particular in reading in Genesis, I gave you that chart, but if you would look again at Genesis chapter 11 and look and, and just write out the, the ages at death of the patriarchs that are listed in Genesis 11. Just write their name and a number. Name and a number. Name and a number. And then after you get doing that, done that, take a look at the numbers. Now, if you have some graph paper, you can have some more fun. Plot the numbers. On the ordinate of that graph paper, plot generation 1, 2, 3, 4 for each man that you see in Genesis 11. Then on the, uh, the ordinate of the graph, plot the time interval and watch what you see. And we'll talk about well, that curve that you get when you plot the data in Genesis 11, that mysterious curve. Because that mysterious curve forms the root and the heart of something amazing. An amazing biblical alternative to what you usually learn when you talk about the origins of civilization. Uh, the Bible has a completely different approach to it and you'll see that not only is it a radical approach, but it can explain a lot of things that we apparently can't explain sometimes when we talk about the Bible. Alright, we're going to close tonight because I believe in keeping this course strictly to an hour. And I'm always available after the course uh, each evening for some questions and answers for those who have. The other people have to get out of here. They have appointments and so forth. And we honor that. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Continue to illuminate our hearts as we Christians in the middle of the 20th century, at the end of the 20th century, seek to know you better in a world that is rapidly going into darkness. We ask that your Holy Spirit correct our lives where we have erred, that we see more and glimpse more of you as we look at your stunning words and works in history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll take a break for a few minutes and those who have any questions, I'll be glad to discuss with you uh, after the place chaos level lowers a little bit. Um, be happy to entertain those questions. Anybody? <laughs> well, it's, things haven't changed in the last year. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, yeah, I, I, I skipped about five or six steps in the thought process there. What, what the, the idea there is, is that when God speaks, he uses metaphors. Metaphors and illustration. All literature is built on metaphor. And 
it's apparently the only way that he has of communicating spiritual truth. When you look at the metaphors of the New Testament that describe salvation, basically we're one species in Adam and another species in Christ. We don't transmute from being in Adam to Christ. We are created anew in Christ. So we can't bridge. Uh, there's not a roadway. There's not a continuous road that leads from Adam to Christ. There's no, no pathway across the saved, unsaved boundary. That's why we believe in regeneration. That it has to be by a regenerating act of the Holy Spirit that we become Christians. We are born again, born again into a new species. That whole idea of a, of a new species is, is relevant if God is making species anyway in the natural universe around us that transmute. And that's why Paul in that passage, there's no question in 1 Corinthians 15, he has Genesis 1 on his mind. Why does he have Genesis 1 on his mind? Because it's the only way he has of revealing the mystery of resurrection. That we are created in Adam with a natural body. We're born again in Christ who we share his resurrection body. There's no half natural, half resurrection body. There's a gap there. And so that idea of these uncrossable gaps is inherent in the way the Bible works. You'll see that another place in the Mosaic Law Code where diet is used. Um, there's dietary restrictions in Jews, and you still see it in the kosher food stores. In fact, the word, you know, you'll see that Hebrew word in a kosher food store. Well, that, that is a Hebrew word, it's kosher, and that's the word that's used in the Old Testament for the separation. So, the idea there is that you have a, a dietary restriction between clean and unclean food. And there's no halfways between it. You'll see it even gets so fanatical in the Mosaic Law that you could not wear clothing that was a mixture of fiber. That the fiber had to be of one kind or another kind, but you didn't mix fibers. Well, why is there this passion at categorization? And we believe it's inherent to Christian theology. And if you think about it, it's inherent to meaning. If everything blends into everything else, how do you label anything? If I label this as a chair, it's obviously not the floor. What would a half chair, half floor look like? Well, you'd have some goo that you see in the news, in these computer effects where the chair just slurps down and becomes the floor. But that's all computerese. That's just a, a, a hypothesis, a conjecture, that we can have high-tech conjectures now. But they're still conjectures. The scriptures hold that you, can't, you have these inherent things because otherwise words and language would mean nothing. What is a noun? A noun is a label of something. All right, so if you have a noun, you have a noun here, it means piano, bench, chair, floor, this, that, God, man. You see? And if you're, if you're going to smear all this together and allow a, a transmutation idea, the continuity of being, ultimately what you've done is you've rendered language useless. Because language requires a category to get the nouns to work. Nouns don't work on a continuum. Okay. So, this is why in the history of science, there, there, up until, in fact, there's still today some theoretical mathematicians that don't believe that irrational numbers exist. That the irrational number would be one, like, for example, you have a you know, two, four is an integer, and you have one half, one sixteenth, and so on. It's made up of integers. And those are called rational numbers. Well, the Greeks were playing around with triangles one day and they discovered, uh-oh, 
Pythagorean formula for triangle, x squared plus y squared equals z squared on the hypotenuse. And they discovered when I go to solve that equation for the hypotenuse, I get a square root of 2. Uh-oh, what's that? And they couldn't, they couldn't express it as a fraction. They couldn't express it as an integer. So the Greeks called it an irrational number, meaning they couldn't think about it. And if you think, ab if you think about it, um, it's ironic, but there's not a computer today that handles irrational numbers. Every computer deals with rational numbers because every computer truncates numbers. You only have so many in the register of a computer, you only have so many digits. And every digit is, is something to base 10 or hexadex or bi, uh, bi, binomial 0, 1 binary numbers. So a computer today can never, this pi doesn't exist in a computer. Square root of 2 doesn't exist in a computer. A computer doesn't generate those numbers. It's generating approximations to those numbers. So my whole point in raising this is that even with our high-tech computers today, we have problems crossing, making a continuum. Is there a continuum in the universe? There's not a continuum in God because it's three in one. There's distinct Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not the Father or the Son kind of goo into each other. They're distinct. So that, why I keep making this as a big thing, is rather than I could spend a lot of time going through the text and this detail, and this, I just trust you can read the text. We're all literate. What we want to deal with is the big ideas of the text. And this is a fundamental idea. It's the building block of truth. And if we let this go, at the very first step, we're dead. Down the road, we're dead. And people who, who know the game that's being played here know very well where it leads. Because in our own century, we have people called existentialists and the linguistic philosophers. And what are they doing? They're all going to mysticism. Why are they going to mysticism? Because they believe, with deep conviction, that language is insufficient. Language has certain boundaries. You can't transgress them. So discard language. We'll go on. Ooh, ah, how I feel. And that's the origin of this mysticism. Now, it's not to say that there aren't thoughts that God has that we can't ever understand. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways, said the Lord. We're not denying the incomprehensibility of God, but we're saying that even those things that aren't incompre are incomprehensible to us aren't incomprehensible to Him. He has a plan, at least. We may not know it, but He has a plan. And that's the, the dilemma of our faith. When Abraham, we get to Abraham in his great trial because that's going to be the story of faith. Abraham is a problem. Point after point in his life in this family feud that goes on for three or four generations, the poor guy is always faced with a crisis. And he never gets an idea of how it's going to work out because God never reveals ahead of time how it's going to work out to Abraham. So Abraham and Sarah have these big discussions what are they going to do now? But they don't really know. God promises that he's going to do thus and such, but he doesn't tell them how he's going to do it. And he really surprises you how he brings, brings his promises to pass in history. And it, it's just a refutation that we can sit here with our pompous knowledge and control God's thoughts. That's not what we're saying. We're simply arguing that there's intelligence and design and purpose behind everything. And we know some of those purposes, but we don't know a lot of the other purposes. But that doesn't mean the purpose doesn't exist. If somebody dies in your, in your home with a tragic death, there's a reason for that. Now, you can be bitter toward God 
I can react to God. Why did he ever allow this? But he had a reason. It wasn't nothing. It wasn't an accident in the capital A. as a big chaos thing, like a piece of turbulent smoke or something drifting around. It was a purpose in it. And we've got to hold to that. That's why it's either creation or nothing. It's either the Genesis text or nothing. So our faith roots in the faithfulness of God and the necessity of going back to the text. So tonight we review creation. Next week we're going to talk about, again, remind us of just the basics, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. And by that time, I'll have notes to hand out next week and we'll start going into the first topic. The big topic is the rise of nations and races and how continents were populated. Then we're going to discuss why all that's rejected. And that's the significance of the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham is also an indictment upon the human race. The human race didn't cut it. So God had to start a new work in a special subset of the human race called the Jewish Jews. And the fact he had to do that says there's something wrong with all of our national backgrounds, all of our racial backgrounds, all of our languages. There's something, there's a corruption in it. And it's so corrupt that God in his plan of salvation could not use any of our races, any of our cultures. He had to create an entirely new vehicle for his work. So that's the significance of the call of Abraham. It levels all the human race down, cuts them all, cuts us all down. There's no super race. No one race isn't better than the other. One culture isn't better than the other. They're all, they're all depraved. So we're all down in the zero level. But it doesn't mean we're not magnificent in art and cultures and so on. The pyramids of Egypt, marvelous, marvelous engineering done by the sons of Noah. But what I like you to do is just remind yourself that curve. We studied it last year is just renew and think about that curve. What would history look like if I literally believed in Genesis 11? If those people had those lifespans in the sequence in which they're found, what would that mean? That's the thing we're going to work on for a couple of weeks here. Um, the implications. It's a stunning implication as far as the rise of civilization, how fast it rose, why you have ziggurats in the Mesopotamian Valley. You go down to the Nile River and you find the pyramids and you find the most magnificent ones early and the ones that were made later are less magnificent. Why is there a deterioration rather than an increase? What was the brilliance of the men who first did this? They knew navigation. They knew celestial navigation to the degree. Those pyramids are so structured that, that you know, little hicks that just gave up bananas a couple of weeks ago didn't build the pyramids. They were brilliant people. And they are the sons of Noah that are listed in Genesis 10 and 11. Those are the pyramid builders. Those are the fathers of the Indians. Those are the fathers of the Negroid races. Those are the fathers of the Caucasian race. Those are our fathers. And we want to study our fathers in their interaction, why there are wars in history, why the, the globe seems polarized over this Middle Eastern thing. Again, century after century, the Middle East fight between the Jew and the Gentile precedes Abraham. It goes all the way back to Shem and Ham and the conflict there. There's been conflict of the Middle East 
all the way, almost back to the time of Noah himself. And it says something. There's something structurally. And there's no politician that's going to solve it. There's no peace treaty that's going to mend it over. It's sad. But that has something to do with the way God is sovereignly working history. So there's the emphasis. Like last year, it was all science and this and that. This year, it's more going to be law, lawyers. Um, it's going to deal with archaeology a little bit, a dating of civilizations, and, and political thought. There's a lot of political thought in the Old Testament. Insights into political institutions, their limitations. And uh, rarely do you ever hear this. Rarely do you ever hear this. I was talking, uh, uh, Eric was, Eric and I were talking last night, and Eric was ta- has gone to, Eric Stamper has gone to Russia, you know. And uh, he was saying that the, the Russian Christians really, you know, they're, they're living in a survival mode. And it, it's sad, but the Russian soul is so passive politically because the Russians have never seen, they've never seen the biblical doctrine of politics unleashed. We Americans take democracy and constitutional government, or we did until the past few generations, uh, we took it uh, like it was just everybody knows that. Well, no, everybody doesn't know that. We were blessed singularly because in this colony of Massachusetts we had a group of people that took the political implications of the Bible very seriously and they were so nasty and so dogmatic and so obstinate about it that they embedded it on the American soul. And that's our heritage. But it comes out of the Bible. And the poor Russian people have never had that. And that's why they're trampled underfoot by every dictator that comes along. They just feel like, well, no, can't fight City Hall kind of approach. Well, we'll just see about that. Is that the way the prophets handle themselves in the Old Testament? You can't fight City Hall? Is that why the prophets walked in and told off David, the king? Can you imagine anybody going in and telling off the Pharaoh of Egypt? You'd be decapitated. Amazing thing. Nowhere in all of ancient history did you have the authority that you had in the Israeli monarchy. And nowhere did you have the humility in the institution. How did they get that mixture? How could Amos a simple layperson, walk into the king and say, you're wrong. You don't find that in pagan culture. And that's why the poor Russians, who have never seen what biblical politics look like, can handle themselves today, whether they have the vote or they don't have the vote. Because they don't have the culture background, don't have the baggage, don't have the tools, never had the tools. And we're rapidly going down to a point where we're just fragmenting too, in the sense we're fragmenting into this group, that group, this group. And every group has its rights. And this group defines its rights. And this group defines its rights. Wait a minute. A right has to be a universal. It has to be common to all groups. But you see, there's no longer a source for universals because the faith is gone. Now you watch what's going to happen in America. You're going to see fragmentation. We could balkanize in our country just like Yugoslavia did between one group and another group because the transcendental universals are are slipping away from us. And we, the Christians, are the only ones left with transcendentals, with universals. If we can't show to the world that um, our different cultures can mix under Christ and the Word of God, this country's had it. I always love to hear, you know, on Sunday when Jeek gets up and prays. I always think of Jeek as, uh, as a picture of what the ancient patriarch must have looked like. You know? Because here's this man who's so thoroughly Persian. 
I mean, Jeek is so thoroughly Persian, so utterly different from us Europeans. A completely different culture. And here he is on the board of elders. We love the guy. We have fellowship with him. We don't always think of him as a foreigner, do we? We think of him as a brother in Christ. But do you realize that he is as different from most of us as any two races on earth? There's a good example. So we have the tool in Christ of dealing with this. But we're very few and far between in this country. And, and all yak-yak about rights, 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 rights. It's just fragmenting us to pieces. So those are some of the themes that I hope that we'll learn in the Old Testament passage. Some good stuff in there. And it's just not usually taught. And we usually skip over it in Christian circles because we're always talking about the New Testament, the New Testament, the New Testament. Hey, two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. We're not going to talk about that. So we're going to talk about that. And that's what we're doing in the next few weeks. And I'll get you the notes next week. We'll have the first set of notes out. Okay? Uh, no, but that if I need a total number, and if you just call the church office or something and let them know so I have some sort of number, because what happens is I have to type them out and then I go to the copy store and run them off, and then we hand them out, and I either make too many and I have an attic full, or I don't make enough and Carol's always run into the copy store to, to copy some more. So what we're trying to do is just get an accurate number. My wife was afraid we would ask that. No, we have, we have chunks and pieces, unfortunately. We have no complete set of notes from last year, but I have chunks and pieces. And my, the quickest way would be to talk to somebody who has a notebook so you can see, see what, it, what we did. That's the fastest way. Okay? All right, we'll see, see you next week.